Welcome to Out of the Blank. another episode of out of the blank podcast I had a little bit of technical difficulties dirk it's a pleasure to finally have you on the show be able to speak with you would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening yeah yeah my name is dirk duran gibson i am a retired professor of communication and journalism from the university of new mexico and these days i spend my time as a producer of a streaming video series for netflix and i am also in the document and book selling business. I have a half dozen books on serial murder and a couple on outer space and one on how attorneys communicate. I was asked by the Department of Agriculture to do a complete study of the national recall system. And my most recent two books are a a study of J. Edgar Hoover based on his marginalia on declassified FBI memos And then the most recent book is a study of the most violent prison riot in America, which took place in Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1980. So I am a nerd and an ex-professor, and I I claim those virtues proudly. Uh, When it comes to J. Edgar Hoover, please, I've heard so many varying degrees of J. Edgar Hoover. What did you, where did you particularly focus about him? And can you, maybe you can help me explain this man a little bit. He was a macrocosm of the elite men of the day. And there were no women. There were no non-whites. There were no non-binary. There were no people who were not white, homosexual, or heterosexual, wasp kind of people. In my study, uh, because when I was in college, Hoover was a big deal. He was the most feared man in America when politicians would have cocktail parties in DC, if someone broached a topic that they thought was controversial, they would all go out on the balcony to talk because they were sure that every room was bugged and every phone was wiretapped. Um, People either hated Hoover and there was a uh, Hoover devil myth. The FBI spent 42 years on a PR campaign for Hoover, creating a Hoover God myth. So what I suggested in my research was, we don't really know who Hoover was. All we have are these unidimensional stereotypical caricatures, which are completely extreme. So what I did is I used his handwritten comments on internal FBI documents. Uh, Those are collectively termed marginalia in the scholarship business. And I used his handwritten comments to describe his professional behavior, and as much as I could, his personal behavior. And as you know, when people who direct organizations like the FBI, when there are letters written or speeches given, he doesn't write them. Someone else puts the words in his mouth. So I thought the most uh, most parsimonious and most accurate way to describe him was to use his own words. And that's what my study uh, 
was comprised of, I had uh, 375, I think, memos with his handwritten comments on them. And that's how he would direct the FBI. He was an armchair detective, Robbie. He never went to the crime scenes or anything, but all the major policy proposals were sent to him as memos. And then he would write in the margins of the memos what he wanted to have done. When it comes to some of the handwritten notes that he had, could you give me some examples and kind of your viewpoint on Hoover? Like I said, I've been in the past couple of months invested into the JFK assassination. Um, I've talked to many experts, Robert Blakey from the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Um, you name them, I basically talk to them if they're alive. Um, Posner, all those people from both varying sides. I do believe conspiracy in a name that does get brought up is J. Edgar Hoover and Hoover's involvement. Now, I had to learn who this man was. I had to go into the positives of all the people that have written positive about him. And I've, because most of the assassination talks negatively about him. Now, one thing I started to come across was his invasion into Hollywood looking for communists. And so much of this, and from a strategic point, you go, well, that's just smart. I mean, that's, a, that's not that bad, but I start to go, when does he draw the line of the world police? And I'm hoping maybe from your perspective as well, I can help balance out either the negative or the positive and just trying to understand a little bit more about who this man was. Cause I listened to so many tapes just to try and get a background of the figures that you see in the newscasts, but those secret white house tapes and try and listen in and see if I can go, what is he talking about? Does he seem evil? Does anybody smell sulfur? I had to ask these questions and it helps me get a better picture of not only the presidents or the people in his administration, but also just the people that are in politics in general to try and understand what do these guys think about? What is their problems that they want to talk about? What is the concern to them? And I'm hoping you could show me some of your research or some examples that could enlighten me on the man. Yeah, it'd be interesting. And I have to congratulate you. You are a scholar, maybe an informal scholar, but you clearly show scholarly tendencies. And when you mentioned Blakely, I did my master's and doctoral research in the FBI building in the Freedom of Information Act, Privacy Act reading room. And the first time I was there, Blakey was the only other person in there. And I didn't know who he was at the time. Then later, as you, I'm sure you know, there were uh, uh, committee hearings, the Select Committee on Assassinations. And I wrote and requested permission to be uh, in attendance. And my letter that I received back was very affirmative and very flowery. So when I showed up for DC for the hearings the first day, the uh, security people put me up with the committee believe it or not. They didn't put me in the back of the room with the general public or the next section, which is the media, or the next section, which was family of the people who are testifying. I was on the, 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 the uh, smaller of those two kind of, uh, uh, I'm not sure what, we. it's like linear, but it's a curve linear. And at the top table up there were all the Congress people with their staff behind them. And I was on that committee for two and a half days until Congressman Stokes from Ohio, the chair, asked what the hell I was doing there. And then I was uh, ceremoniously reseated. But again, I, I didn't go all the way to the back of the room. I just went to where the media were. And the, the name of the game back then, Robbie, was power. Uh, uh, four times, J. Edgar Hoover was called to the White House by the president, and he was going to be uh, let go. And every time he shared with that president 
information about the president's family and friends and associates. And all four times he left the White House tenured and still in charge of the FBI. And Black I think male. this is the problem Black the male. world has with Putin right now. Whenever people from the intelligence community get in positions of power, it's always very frightening because they their currency is information and negative information can go a long way if you want to keep your job. Well, didn't he originally get his job or get into politics because he was standing out of motels interviewing um uh, I don't know if it was prostitutes or not, but he was he was getting dirt on like government officials, if I'm not mistaken. Right, right. And that's what intelligence agencies deal in. That's how Putin has maintained his control over powers. He knows who's sleeping with who and who's not paying their taxes. And uh, J. Edgar Hoover was, for his time, a representative of the white elite um, leader. And when you have information like that, people are afraid to cross you. I there's I mean, I, I I've came through so much with J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, I, I, I said for the longest time that him and address was a conspiracy. And I mean, if you need some validation, I can show you the picture because I do have it. And now I don't know what this means. I have no evidence to prove anything of that sort. But if you look at J. Edgar Hoover's and it's it's unintended consequences, man. When you're in a position like that, you're developing secrets on individuals that are around you in your administration. You're not only leading the FBI, but in a sense, he felt like he was the world police. I mean, searching for communists in movies, rooting out homosexuals and all this type of stuff. I was like, there's no way, no matter who you are, that does not turn you into this crooked figure, not a crook, not crooked in the sense of breaking the law. Well, I mean, in a sense, breaking the law, but not in a sense of like a criminal, but more like a person that has a way that he can use it as leverage and it starts to turn more into not relationships or friendships it turns more into i have this over you so this is what's going to happen and it is that power game and that gets brought up a lot in the 60s and 70s it gets brought up a lot in politics in general but hoover was he had too many secrets that's that's one where i was like you knew way too much man you know he was able to single-handedly dissuade the federal government from believing in the mafia let alone doing anything about it until the 1963 Appalachian Conference of Mob Leaders came to the attention of New York State Police, who then uh, arrested all those people. And then Hoover was embarrassed because there was public evidence here. The mob not only met or not only existed, but they had conference board meetings and uh, subnational police were able to uh, were able to make a change. And, and uh, from that point on, the FBI half-heartedly attacked uh, organized crime. My guess is, Robbie, early in his career, he was threatened by the mob. And there's a scene in one of the Godfather movies, I think, where a director wakes up in his bed and there's a horse's head in it. I think that a similar thing probably happened to Hoover. And he it was explained to him that he could continue in his job and they'd leave him alone if he left them alone or there'd be consequences. Now, I can't prove that, but that's a strong suspicion of mine. I've tried my hardest because I think the conspiracy that Anthony Summers said about Hoover and Address, and I've seen the photos and I've heard the history between him and Clyde Tolson. So, I mean, it's not out 
out of the realm. I mean, there was just that senator recently that protested the gay marriage bill, and then he goes to his gay son's wedding. So it's like it's not, you know, society has always been hypocritical in some sense. But I think with Hoover, you could see that on the extreme side of that. Or I would go with the more easier um, common ground solution with the general public who, because to be honest, anybody that's like looking into history, you have to have a particular interest. Like a lot of people now today, I mean, even with the JFK stuff, I see Tucker Carlson go out on news and saying that Joyon West, the MK ultra doctor was Jack Ruby's psychiatrist. I've been saying that for months. I have the documentation of his death certificate, his autopsy, his 126 x-rays in two weeks. But then now people look at me and they go, Hey, so was that real? I was like, you rolled your eyes and called it a conspiracy. So let me help you find the common ground. Is it possible that they had pictures of J. Edgar Hoover in a dress? Yes, I'll show you them. That's what the mob said. Or I can get you with the most common ground example, which is that Hoover liked to go to the track and the mob used to fix his races. That's that's not even going to get anybody to roll conspiracy. That's just logical. So I would bring that example up. And I, I tell people, even then, do I have a document that states he was getting his funding from the mob? No, but we have a mob accounts. But still, take that with a grain of salt. And I think if you bring a lot of these up to the forefront, you start getting like a bigger picture where it's just like, Oh my God, what is going on in politics? And it's, it, to me, it's interesting. I like Hoover. I think I don't have, I mean, I don't have a personal favorable opinion because I never met the man, but I think when you start looking through history, you start looking at what politics can do to a certain individual, especially a person that placed at that seat at the table as an FBI director. And there's a lot of occurrences where he went to go basically talk about, you know, getting retired. Kennedy was an example of him getting retired. And, you know, he stayed for a long time. I think until he died. You have a very sophisticated understanding of a lot of things, right? I don't. I really impressed. don't. I really don't. I'm trying to figure it out the best I can. <laughs> the, the, the comments, the memo comments are, uh, many are relatively brief, as you might guess. The most common, I, I categorize the comments that I have. And the most common kind of, uh, of a comment was agreement because his views were pretty clear in the FBI and his subordinates would only propose things that they knew he would accept. Uh, the category of, of uh, marginalia that was interesting to me the most were the emotional outbursts. Uh, there was one point at which he wrote, the FBI ought to lay down and die and never get up because we've been op uh, castigated publicly in such a way that we'll never recover. Uh, there was a Justice Department official named Nicholas uh, Katzenbach, Katzenbach, and he memo. was the liaison between the politicians and the FBI. And there are comments like, this shows uh, Katzenbach's true colors. Uh, Earl Warren, who was the chairman of the Warren Commission and a Supreme Court justice, he uh, was a favorite target of Hoover, Hoover's, as were the Kennedys. So there'll be a comment like, looks like Warren is still leaking and certainly a statement not befitting a, a chief justice. Uh, now, remember, we're dealing with a man, J. Edgar Hoover, who had his organization send a tape, a copy of a tape recording, to Coretta Scott King after Martin Luther King died. And the tape recorded a tryst between King and a woman. And this is after he was dead. So uh, Hoover's Hoover had a vengeance streak, a retaliatory streak. And, and I can't imagine 
doing something like that if if he was still alive. But after he was dead, what was the point in doing that? Just to cause her pain. And I think that that pain-causing tendency is something that a lot of white male elites at least used to do, and I think they're still doing it. I think um, if you look at COINTELPRO, what scared me the most was that I think COINTELPRO, most people know that the FBI invaded the Black Panther Party, um, inserted radicals, and kind of got them paranoid. But it goes so much deeper. I mean, they never even talked about what they did to the white funders of the Black Panther Party by showing them a coloring book, a fake coloring book, showing them, hey, this is who you're funding. And it was the Black Panthers beating up white people and just beating up people that would have these funders pull out. And that was all created by the FBI. I mean, look into the Fred Hampton assassination. There's a name that gets mentioned throughout every like huge MLK, RFK, JFK, uh, Fred Hampton. And you're just like, all right, look, there's a lot of coincidences in this world. And yes, you could say maybe he just had like the longest reigning FBI directorship. But also I bring up when I talked to Jeff Shepard, who was a defendant of Nixon during the Watergate hearing, he was on Nixon's defending staff. And um, it's from those Watergate hearings of Nixon trying to pressure J. Edgar Hoover into using the FBI. But Hoover said no. And I go, the only time he's saying no to the president is because either he doesn't like Nixon or he spread his FBI way too thin. And I think his track record shows he was doing a lot of wiretaps and other mail intercept things that would definitely be exposed if he tried to lend his aid to Richard Nixon, who was being, I mean, he was in the eyes of everybody. I think you're right. And I think that we're talking about a level of of unacknowledged power that is frightening in a democracy. And I think we see some parallels now, a very different kind of danger, but you know, democracy is a fragile thing and it presupposes honest communication and adherence to laws. And when Hoover was in charge of the FBI, there was no adherence to laws, Hoover was the law. Do you think that Hoover, I mean, his emotional outbursts, what, what were some of like some deep, any emotional outbursts about himself instead of just the agency? Like, did he ever have conflicting views or emotions? I mean, I'd have to think at some point, I mean, I, every photo I've ever seen of him besides the young photo shot you see when he's a young, handsome man, but when he's older, he just seems like, God damn it, get me out. Like, he just looks like he's ready to like, just explode or just, you know, jump off a cliff or something. <laughs> you know, when, when you get older, um, Robbie, you, you tend to become a caretaker for the establishment. You, you try to perpetuate things. And I think that like all effective Washingtonians within the, uh, the, the beltway, within the D.C., you want to perpetuate your power first and foremost. And that's what he did. And uh, some, uh, some of the things he did was good. For example, he was the only prominent American political figure who opposed the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II. Now, his reasons may not have been holy, but he was the only one that stood up and said, this is wrong. These people haven't done anything. So there were parts of Hoover's professional behavior that I admired, and he was a very effective bureaucrat. He was an, and that's really what it really was, was a bureaucrat. And uh, the, the reason I wrote that book and did my research was I wanted to find out what he was really like what J. Edgar Hoover was really like. And of course, the, the information I have doesn't really speak to his personal life. You know, many people have speculated about that. But in terms of his professional life, I think he did what he thought was right for the country. But Republicans have long used the communist fear 
as a, a motivation and as their their whipping boy. Uh, and Hoover bought into that. He was as responsible as Joseph McCarthy for McCarthyism, I think. I think if you look at um, Hoover's invasion into like Hollywood looking for communists, I mean, he had influence into movie scripts and they have influence into movie scripts today, even at such small degrees. But his whole thing of when the FBI comes on screen, they can shoot as many times as they want, but the bad guys can only shoot a couple of times and they have to miss. Now, if you wonder what that implication does, imagine uh, every time I've seen a movie, I'd be like, oh, shit, the FBI is here. They're going to clear up the streets because they're the badasses of the law. And it's like, no, that was all influenced into you. They're human beings. And sometimes their investigations are shit. And that's fine. But it's that whole ingrained into motion picture where you're like, OK, so there's some real ramifications here. And I've like I've tried my best to do some research on some things, particularly it's all mostly focus of the JFK assassination and his relation. But um, I don't like I don't think he's like a grand master plan or anything like that. But I looked into Hoover and just files on him with Walt Disney. What is your relationship with these industries? Well, I mean, the beginning sounds off really like, OK, like, hey, we're going to introduce FBI agents into Mickey Mouse cartoons so the kids can get a feel of Mickey Mouse. I'm like, look, that's small scale propaganda. I, I can't I'm not going to fight that fight on that one. But then towards the ending, it's like, oh, no, we have all these people that are communists that are striking up labor unions. And I'm like, bro, no, they're not communists. You just want to get rid of the people that are doing these protests. And you're like. So there's an oppression of power. And Hoover was one of those persons that became buddy buddy with uh, Walt Disney and kind of started, you know, agreeing to a lot of the things that Walt Disney started taking him for these rides. Hey, we're friends, right? You can get rid of these uh, communist supporters. I right? just call him a communist. And you're just like, when does it end? I mean, a fake Martin Luther King death threat? I mean, what are we doing? I'm pretty sure they told him to kill himself at one point as well, too. So it's like, you start going into like, okay, so guy with power makes sense, but the crazy stuff, that crazy stuff, that's something that the, the career of having that power does to you. It turns you broken and it turns you into a person you could not recognize yourself. He used to be a Boy Scout, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right. And a high school debater. And he was, uh, uh, one thing about the FBI, uh, the PR campaign that created the Hoover God myth was a symbiotic uh, pursuit between filmmakers and TV makers, you know, producers and the FBI. And it was symbiotic in that Hoover and the FBI were, were beloved and respected by virtually all Americans who weren't, you know, left-wing commie simps. And <clears throat> the campaign became a self-fulfilling prophecy after a while, and movie producers and television producers vied for the contract with the FBI because they were they were supplied uh, scripts, uh, they were supplied uh, supervisors. There were FBI people on the scenes of filming, producing of all those videos and all those uh, television programs and movies. So uh, Hollywood and Hoover kind of joined hands and uh, to create favorable outcomes for both parties is that part in part with the fbi code office with what the the fbi code office the censorship office uh yeah the actually public you know under hoover a massive public relations apparatus was created uh, called public affairs and it would have been the public affairs people who were involved in things like that and and of course we know we now know that 
for example, in your generation, uh, social media is the way to communicate. Uh, back during the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was first radio and then television. So what we see is kind of a coalescence or congruence between media private interests and Hoover and the FBI's private interests. I try my hardest using this show to talk to people from various perspectives just to get a balanced approach. I think you're, you know, I don't try to label people right wing, left wing. I kind of just talk to you as the individual name that you were given um, at birth and talk to you as that person. Um, don't always do it correctly. You know, my ADHD doesn't see the political party. It sees a person in front of me. Um, sadly, you know, I've tried my hardest to get the balanced perspective on things, but I notice a lot in media as well too today is that it's all one-sided. Um, and that's fine. I mean, if you're not right-wing, if you're not left-wing, it's, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I believe in a deep state and that just keeps me biased in the fact that I don't think any of it matters. Um, but it does in a sense. I'm not trying to belittle it at all, but I think you can get lost in the minutia of it's a left wing this, it's a right wing that. And I just start going, look, before there was even these two party system ideas that we're able to now talk about real issues, but we blame them on the two party system. I was like, there's people that have been building this thing from the foundation that started way before we even had Fox News or CNN. There's been a long establishment build of mentalities and people in power that just keep getting corrupted and corrupted and they work the system. And I mean, that leads up to a lot of people to be interested in the conspiracy stuff. But I'm like, we have to be so careful with that word. I mean, anybody, technically a podcaster or whoever, can be a voice of something. I'm like, for your a job or for whatever you want to do and whatever goal you want to accomplish, for me, it was always seen as like, try and find the more both sides of the argument discussion. Then you realize that like, people don't like that. I mean, fans do or listeners do, but people that want to do a show, they, they just want to be surrounded by people that agree with them already. It's surprisingly like interesting to me where I'm like, wouldn't you want to just like talk like it doesn't have to be a debate. It just it's a conversation. Well, one thing about the milieu within which Hoover operated, as you probably know, Washington D.C. is a very political place. I mean, it is layer on layer, like they talk about onions being layer on layer of, of behavior material. Uh, to give an example, when I wrote my when I did my study for the Department of Agriculture. That was my first main research area, it was product recalls and product safety. Um, I was asked to do a study one summer after the USDA had some ineffective recalls and killed a couple scores of people. And what they wanted was a whitewash. Unfortunately, I'm an old straight you know, person, an old debater, and I did a real study of uh, all the regulatory uh, uh, the recallers, all of them, industrial, trade association, manufacturers, uh, did a study of the whole system and didn't exonerate them, but just put it in perspective. Uh, they wouldn't let me publish that book through the government pub publishing office, GPO, which publishes everything, you know, committee hearings and stuff like that, because there was one paragraph in one chapter in one of the two volumes, was a two-volume study, that they were afraid made them look weak. And, and weakness, the perception of weakness in D.C. is an unforgivable sin. You know, it's like chum in the water. The sharks start to circle, and pretty soon you're dead. So 
uh, one thing that I'm not sure the general public understands is our top level legislature, the people that create the laws for our system, and then their staff, the regulatory agencies, there's this fear of looking weak. And I think that we may not really understand that. And if you understand that, then the power play kind of behavior that Hoover and others have engaged in makes a little more sense. It's protective and defensive. Like I even said, I can only relate this to the Kennedy assassination, but when you come across a 21 and 22 release recently, they just released more documents. They have a document that stated Garrison's attempts to embarrass the agency. And it's something I started noticing. I was like, why is an agency talking about like this dude's trial or investigation going to be uh, embarrassed them? And then I look on the FBI's website and what do I see? Platoon by Oliver Stone. JFK by Oliver Stone, a bunch of movies that obviously have a tilt at slanting at the agencies and their reputation. And they're documenting them like this is going to be a problem. And I go, you don't want your agencies talking about an individual or a person like you're a problem. They work for us, don't they? And then you kind of I mean, I read the 651 church committee uh, report last night. Um, I was bored. It was middle of the night. I said, screw it. <laughs> when you're looking through that and you start going even the church committee eventually started to become a bit of a whitewash. They exposed a lot, but they, at, there were certain points where they were giving up. And it's like, I talked to, when I talked to Blakey, Blakey now says like the CIA didn't give me all the documents we were supposed to have. And I go, cause you, you were a whitewash in a sense too. You didn't see it at the time, but there's plenty of documents to reflect that. He agrees with that statement. And it's kind of like, man, everything is, you can look at it as embarrassing the agency. You think COINTELPRO makes them look good? You think none of this stuff does. It's they, the reason why they destroy documents, the reason why they hide all of this, because they don't want to look like they're incompetent. And that's what I don't like is people go, the government's so incompetent. I was like, how? Nobody's paying the price. If it gets exposed, Mockingbird, Operation Mockingbird, it, if you Google that on the history books right now, you know what it says? It lasted three months in 63. I came across in the 2022 release of the JFK files, 30 different things saying, get your media assets in line to push this story and any conspiracies about the official story, they ridicule them. And I go... Nobody's paying the price. It said it ended in 63. This document's from 64 and 65. So obviously they kept going. It's like this mentality of like, well, what's the point of researching all of this? It's all in the past. It's like, because nobody's understanding the fact that you seek anybody, Secret Service, whoever, if it's in the Kennedy assassination, nobody did their job. And then there were issues that lead on to conspiracies that last 60 something years. And it's like very difficult because people like yourself or other people that do independent research, you put in the time, you put in the effort to find this stuff. And then you talk about it and people either roll their eyes like conspiracy and walk away. It's like, well, hang on a second. Even for me, I interviewed Blakey from the House Select Committee on Assassinations, jo Judge Thunheim from the AARB, the Assassination Records Review Board. I've had over 70 something guests from various perspectives on this. I've done the journalism to talk to these people and be able to ask the questions that need to be asked as well, too. That's not a pat on my back. I'm just saying you can't call that a conspiracy. That's got to be like we got to start looking at like this has some credibility behind it or we need to start looking into this. And then you find out about COINTELPRO. You find out about Fred Hampton. And it's just, it's, I mean, it's good in our society that people are likely to believe that, but I hate that it has to be likely to believed because of a certain ethnicity. I think 
it, these are just people in power that find a person, no matter who they are, and be able to manipulate the hell out of them. And that's not slanting the history behind our country and the abuses towards a certain ethnicity, but it's just looking at the overall power control. Me, you, anybody out there listening, if something happened and we were an easy problem that could be pushed away and it, and it kept their reputation, the agencies in line, there's no way that choice would be a tough decision to make. That's a, that's a good point. And I think it's an important point that you make, Robbie. I mean, I, I was thinking about when you asked me a few minutes ago about the content of some of those uh, uh, comments, um, there was a journalist named Walker Stone, and a couple of the memo comments are, uh, Deke, straighten Walker Stone out on this. And when you're talking about straightening out the media, then you are kind of explicitly admitting that, you, you know, if there were media players, the FBI knew who the journalists were, uh, mostly in New York, as some in LA, who would, would support them, who would write nice articles, and these people were continually supplied with information. You know, the leak system, I think, is one of the longest running plays in Washington, D.C. history, and it'll continue forever because information is power, and when information that's supposed to be controlled leaks, the consequences are just enormous, as you can imagine. Do you think that when it comes to a lot of this news media and kind of the relationship that they have with the government, do you think at this point it's now just mostly about financial stuff? Like, I mean, it's mostly got to be benefits because before I would consider like the, even that start of that relationship or journalism, um, you know, the agreement or the relationship that they developed. I think it probably started off pretty bad. Like, we're going to blackmail you. We're going to show you this. We're going to show you that. But even now, I'm just like, they get so many more benefits if they just play ball sometimes. Like back, or at least not even now, I, I would say probably a little bit back then. Now, like I said, it blames it on the other party so they can talk about it as long as they blame it on a Democrat or Republican problem. But if you look at like, I mean, the relationship to interviews of guests going to a jail, a federal penitentiary and interviewing whoever they needed to about a serial killer or something. I mean, besides you having to go through a hassle to try and get into that process for some people like the news media, they can get it alive anytime they want. They snap their fingers. And it's because they have this working relationship with the government where now they don't even need to check who you're hanging out with in your free time or get pictures of you. They just go, Hey, you get way more benefits if you work with us and we won't take your station off the air. And it's just like, that doesn't sound crazy at all. It's a smart tactic. It is. And, you know, the, when you, and, and in the serial murder context, law enforcement and uh, the media aren't really friends. You know, the, in many instances, like Hoover would use the FBI uh, to do things for, for people. During, the, during Hoover's tenure with the FBI, they opened up offices called legates or legates, I'm not sure how. And the FBI had a strict provision. They weren't allowed to do anything outside the outside the country. That was the CIA's domain. And even though it was claimed that when the CIA was proposed, that Hoover wanted that to be part of his bailiwick, uh, when he was turned down, it, the FBI spun it through their media, through their uh, beholden reporters, to say that Hoover had turned that down. So believe it or not, a lot of what happens inside the Beltway in Washington is about impression formation. And the, the, the perception of weakness is just anathema. If you're weak, even if you should be weak, that's bad. And the perception of strength is, is dominant.
And, and of course, there's two ways to persuade carrots and sticks. And the FBI and Hoover weren't reluctant to use either one of those when it served their purposes. Do you think that it's about keeping faith in the institutions? Because even in the church committee report, they agreed. And why I say it's a whitewash is because they agreed that some of the abuses that were going on um, shouldn't have been public knowledge because the public would not have agreed with assassination of plots against Castro. Um, other covert abilities that the CIA was up to, and also some wiretaps on the basis of the FBI as well, too. And I look, I'm a patriot at heart. I really am. Um, I think some security things need to be secret, obviously, because intelligence and, you know, just other countries are going to get a hold of that information, too, if they release it to the public. But also you have no trust in your institutions because the public has been lied to about so much. And that scale has slid not only to the CIA never activating on domestic land, which they have been for a long time, but other crazy ideas. I mean, I think even with um, I pulled this up in a recent episode, but the new 2022 release documents, uh, Scott Beckenridge, who worked with Blakey um, doing like that, the House Select Committee assassination documents, that was in one of the releases. And what it said was, let me toss this at you like a hypothetical. If someone was going to go back in time to kill Hitler, wouldn't you agree to kill? And he used that. I swear to you, that's in writing. And I'm like, what? That's a movie scenario where someone asks if you want time travel. And it's like, that's how they're viewing it. They're justifying to themselves that the murder of a, a, a foreign government or replacing whatever is okay because of this extreme example. And it's like, well, does that, to me, that's embarrassing to you guys. You guys are justifying to yourselves. And it's like this image that they portrayed. I mean, I think propaganda in a sense, like, you know, your people should have faith in your institutions, 100%. But I, I don't like the terms that they're drawing to how we should have faith in our institutions. I think you need to tell us the whole truth, because I think we get pitched a one sided story sometimes. And I don't blame right wing or left wing for this. I just believe people in positions of power when it comes to like national security issues. Why can't I see the document? Because it's a national security issue because the person is still alive. They knew what they were doing when they started doing it. Dropping LSD in people's drinks and, you know, doing MK Ultra, you know, that's bad. You know, that's unethical, but they did it. So I don't see the right of their name not being published. And I've talked to Stephen Kinzer, who wrote Poisoner in Chief, and plenty of other people who have talked about the MK Ultra stuff where, I mean, that's not a crazy question. And that's not even a crazy statement. But you say that and then people look at you like you're an anarchist. I'm like, I'm not. I just I don't like the agreement of a nation that doesn't know itself. Well, you know, Robbie, it may be naive, but I think the truth is maybe the single most important thing in a civilized society. Uh, I believe in the marketplace of ideas, but I think ever since that marketplace was opened back by Hobbes and Thoreau and Locke and those people, you know, people want to control information. And I was, I became a communication professor because I was fascinated with the potential power of communication. And to me, unless you're going to force people to do things, use coercion or physical force, communication is the, the process through which we can fix things or we can do things right. The trouble is the fidelity test. There's no, no one has to raise their right hand and put their hand on a Bible and swear what they're saying is true. So <clears throat> I've kind of changed throughout the 40 years of my career. I'm kind of skeptical about the ability of Western democracies and uh, societies like ours to 
effectively do the things they have to do because so many people lie. And as a parent, you know, your kids lie to you. As a teacher, your students lie to you. Their dean lies to you. And at some point in time, unless veracity, unless integrity and honesty rule, I'm really very skeptical about our subnational and national and international behaviors. I've, I've studied too much about the FBI, the CIA involvement into Latin America. I've talked about many issues that go on. And like I said, I am a patriot at heart. But when you learn about this type of stuff, and I've learned, like, I'm not going to be a roadblock. And if someone says, like, the conspiracy, there's no conspiracy in JFK's assassination. I'll ask a couple questions because I got some good points I could bring up, and it's happened in the past. Um, but then when I don't get an answer and they walk away, I'm like, where's the discussion? And it's like this mentality. Like, I've talked to patriots of the intelligence community who think everything that the intelligence community is a good thing. And I'm like, tell me, show me that perspective. Let me learn that from you because I'm tired of this mentality out there where, you know, if you talk to some people who are in maybe study communication, they'll say like, this shows a conspiracy. Everything's wrong about it. Don't listen to it. And I'm like, well, if I have like documentation to show you these things, is that still a conspiracy? And it's like, they won't engage in the argument. Like I said, I've talked to both sides in the communication studies, people who are new teachers, people who are older emeritus professors, people that lived in different times. And you start realizing it's like, it's not super conspiratorial. There are conspiracies out there. Like there's stuff I will not even entertain. Like the moon isn't real, but there is, <laughs> there is real abuses of power. And that is throughout history. That is throughout human society. There is even um, hieroglyphics of ancient Egyptians who left out the fact that they were drugging and drinking drugs and doing all this crazy stuff because they see that as like writing that down in their history was going to be wrong. Do you think there was no fat people in Egypt? Of course there were. Someone had a genetic disorder. They didn't bother to, you know, scratch them down or anything. And you start going, okay, so a society that doesn't recognize itself, has that always been there? Yes. But you know why it's so bad today is because when we look in the past in the history books to try and see where that abuses are or see where there's maybe a, sim a similarity, it's not there because who writes the history books? The people that win. And who doesn't want to tell you about their dirty shit? The people that win. And that's like, that's not even crazy, I don't think. But me saying that I'll get locked in a dungeon or something like that. <laughs> Well, you know, there, I, I tend to resort to cliches on occasion. Power does corrupt, and absolute power does corrupt absolutely. And I'd, I'd like to think that I would be different. Robbie, I can't honestly say. If I were in a Hoover-like position or a, a presidential position, who knows what you might do? You know, humans are influenceable, and sometimes the influences aren't necessarily good. I, th I wonder, was there any scandals that ever came out about Hoover besides like the dressing up like a woman type thing or the gay thing? Like, was there anything? I saw his report on the mob. Um, he mentioned he never acknowledged them because he thought that local state police should handle their mob situations in their states. And I go, that sounds really logical. But then I see the photo of the dress and then I see a bunch of other stuff about him that shows obviously that there's more than like track betting and all this other type of stuff of why you wouldn't do it. I think there's probably all of those are probably valid as well. Um, but I just wonder if there was anybody that was willing to put the word out on Hoover besides maybe Anthony Summers book, but anybody before him, like back then that was reporting for like life magazine or any of those companies we know about that had obviously relationships. 
a, a couple of FBI agents were kind of proselytizing early in the days of the beginning of the Hoover devil myth, a guy named Fred Cook and a guy named William Turner. And Turner in particular um, was just sued and intimidated and frightened. Um, the early FBI critics, it was controversial because they just couldn't stand the, the constant stream of pablum, you know, Hoover's picture on serial boxes and uh and movie theaters making the pro the preface for a new movie or something uh civil rights may have been uh the most controversial and the most uh scandal written part of the fbi's behavior hoover didn't do much to help um civil rights movement in fact when the kennedys would have the fbi agents go down to the south when they're in the freedom riders days uh they weren't allowed to intervene all they would do is take notes. And Hoover's answer was, well, you know, we, we're not a law enforcement agency. We're an investigative agency. So if you want people to crack heads, you know, have the other DOG people come down. Um, but the, the behavior of the FBI with regard to civil rights was one of its big weaknesses, one of its big sins, I think. Do you think that eventually spread it a little bit too thin? I mean, they had a lot going on, but I feel like with a movement like that, that was obviously going to go through no matter who was going to try and stop it. Um, just putting that in the in the roadblock, I even think with the 70s and like Timothy Leary and all these other figures that started coming out anti Vietnam and all this. I was like, yo, you have way too many people that are going against you right now to where you're spreading yourself even more thin with the amount of other stuff they were doing in other countries and, you know, trying to manipulate still. They did it for a good bit, I will admit, but I mean, eventually the tides were going to turn. And I think Hoover knew about that, but I don't think he lived long enough to feel the ramifications of that either. Uh, earlier, uh, there were instances where the FBI was very adaptable when World War II started and the pre-World War II era when there was a war in Europe and in Japan and the Far East and we weren't involved, uh, the FBI was able to expand dramatically. So uh, to me, bureaucrats do what's in their best interest. And if it's in their best interest to double the size or triple the size for an exigence, you know, they can do that. Um, and Hoover was very good. You know, I'm not one of those people who think Hoover was all bad. You know, he, he was responsible for some very good things during the Depression when uh, the American, the average American person hated the government, kind of like today, especially in the farm areas. You know, when banks would foreclose, people like Creepy Carpus and the Dillingers, they were heroes. You know, people would clap at the movie theaters when the bad guys shot up the good guys. And that's one that was the justification for the uh, PR campaign the FBI conducted that because people, the small people hated bankers and hated the politicians so much, they needed a, a counter symbol. And Hoover and the FBI became that counter symbol. So to me, government and society uh, information's a big part of things and uh, control over information's a big part of things. Do you think that the good outweighs the bad or do you think the bad outweighs the good with Hoover? You know, that, that's, a, um, that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, ever since the beginning of our country, we've had divisions. You know, if you read the Federalist Papers and if you know about the early history of American media, we've always had right wing, left wing, except then they were Whigs or know nothings or or something like that. 
um, yeah, ends versus means arguments and analyses are, are interesting, but ultimately, uh, if you're in a war, then there's different rules, right? During World War II, so uh, uh, writs of habeas corpus were suspended, and the right to demonstrate and protest was kind of gone away. So it's difficult to make those judgments, Robbie. I think those speak more about the person making that judgment than about the thing being judged. I try my hardest to, like I said, to keep the balanced approach. I definitely think the bad outweighs the good a little bit more with Hoover. But when I look at like just the era of the seventies and just kind of look at like Nixon and just all this other types of stuff that goes there too, I was like, there was a precedent that was set. You know, whether you went into the administration and like I said, I'm interested in Kennedy's assassination, um, but I'm like, I didn't grow up in that time. So I don't have this connection that a lot of people who are invested into it really do because they knew Kennedy or they liked what he was saying and stuff. And I've seen his speeches. He said some great things. But also, I think the way that that country started going, Johnson, you see Hoover's all also involved in all of this. The administration, the people around you, the people you surround yourself with, you eventually develop the same types of mentalities and personality as in a sense as well, too. And then it just slowly started kept degrading and degrading and degrading. Um, and I'm not even relating it to now. I just mean around the 70s and all this stuff as well, too. And you get into an area where you're like, I mean, this is what happens when we don't know about this, when we don't have transparencies, when the people can't have a voice and this happens all behind the works, which makes you question even more. How long was this going on for? How many issues that were going on behind the works that we never even got an opinion or got to put a, in a statement on? I mean, I, I, I think the devil myth and the God myth, I think it makes all, it's, it makes per perfect sense. But it also goes into, well, who was this man? Like, who was this person? Who is he really? And I've seen people that have worked with him, write a book about him that don't speak favorably about him. And I've seen people that do have worked with him and wrote great about him. And I go, well, I guess it depends on the day. You know, I mean, we all live like that today. Some people have good days and some people have bad days. But from a historical purpose, should we teach them both? Well, you know, progress is an important thing. And we like to think that we're continually progressing and not regressing. But I think that the eye of the beholder is a big factor here. If someone is within your latitudes of acceptance and rejection, your frames of reference, then you're likely to accept whatever they say and to go along with them. But I think that when people, what's that expression, speaking truth to power, I think that must be a very difficult thing to do. And I'm not sure that I could, as an FBI agent, have gone into Hoover's office or Tolson's waiting room or whatever. It takes courage and information. And I think that information, again, my bias as a communication professor and as a former high school and college debater, I believe in information. But if you don't know about the veracity of the information, you know, then you're dealing with trouble is what you're being told the truth. And it's easy to say, well, you know, the information is not coming out or I don't believe it. But until we can arrive at agreed, socially agreed on systems of information and what's the truth, you know, maybe we should all take oaths every day as, as you know, government people or, or teachers or something. But to me, the truth is so important. And it's the first casualty of war and of peace as well, I think. 
I wonder how many people were just following orders and the reason why they didn't stand up or say anything was because of the fact they didn't want to lose, you know, the livelihood for their family. They didn't want to lose everything that they basically, and that's like a scary thing. As much as we say the embarrassment of the agencies is this mentality of following orders. You know, if Hoover gives you a direct order, um, you do it, you don't ask any questions. And, you know, you see that throughout a lot of this, like just any of this old history stuff, like why didn't anybody say anything? I was like, I bet people wanted to, you know, but I don't think they, really wanted to risk everything on just the idea of putting in their opinion that I doubt the person was going to listen anyway. You know, I think there's a tendency, I'm not sure what to label it, maybe buy-in, where when you're in a profession, you become a professional in that profession, and you take on their beliefs and their values. Um, my most recent book was on a, a very terrible prison riot. And um my original field is communication, but as a debater, you know, I, I can research things extensively. And I, I did a lot of interviews and I prepared this book, which was very critical of the warden and of the wardens and of this administration of the prison and of the uh, State Department of Corrections. There were a couple of federal consent decrees that were ignored by the prison. And uh, after the jailhouse lawyers in the ACLU got them promulgated, um, and as a result, there was a riot. Now, when people are not treated well over a long enough period of time, there will be ramifications. And uh, I contacted a, um, an academic, a professor in a state near New Mexico, and this man was extremely qualified, and I wanted to get his opinion on my book. And as you might guess, within corrections, like all industries, there's politics. There's one stream of thought that says, coddle them and they'll kill you. Uh, one, one famous prison warden said, uh, hard labor is a positive kindness because people need structure. And unless you whip them, they won't engage. Anyway, I um, talked to this guy who was not just a, a uh, ex-warden. He was a administrator in a school of criminology. And I thought, this is the perfect person to read my work. And I sent it to him. I never heard back. And I think the reason I never heard back, which is speculation, I think the book offended him. You know, uh, if, if you're in the prison business, guards don't do bad things. Guards don't uh, extort uh, the families of uh, inmates uh, so that the inmate keeps getting their visitation or their mail or their cigarettes or something. And my fear is that unless there's the light of day, which sounds naive, but unless there's relatively open information and communication policies, people get so into their thing that they resent any outsiders looking into it. They kind of declare independence from checks and balances. And when you're talking about the prison milieu, the result is gang rapes on a scale that are hard to believe and uh, thousands of people being tortured and killed. Um, you may be aware that recently there have been reports about uh, uh, wardens uh, sexually abusing uh, their inmates. And in Texas, I think it was Texas, um, a guy was uh, convicted of for years and years raping inmates, female inmates. So whenever you're talking about public policies, whether it's law enforcement or, or law serial murder or, or prisons, 
people get wrapped up in their thing and they don't listen to other points of view. And that's why podcasts like yours are so important. The more points of view we're exposed to, the better we can understand other stakeholders. And really, stakeholders oftentimes have more in common than they realize, but they're just so enamored of their stake that they don't go beyond the parameters of what they're, what they're doing. If you look at um, Holmesburg Prison, I had Alan Hornblum on here who worked at that prison and also exposed it called Acres of Skin. The warden there, I think recently just apologized for it. And it happened like in the 60s. But I mean, it, it went to extensive like cutting people's skin off their back a little bit and using it with pharmaceutical companies had a weird relationship with some of these prisons to test out products. A guy at the age of 20 something uh, tried this new toothpaste and all of his teeth eventually fell out like at the age of like 25 or so. He's only there for like, uh, I think he only it was like a matter of two years or three years after he used that toothpaste, every single one of his teeth just rotted out. Um, there's horrible stories. I mean, I, I listened to his documentary. It's pretty good. It has, um, Sam cook in it singing a change is going to come. And that's a powerful fucking song, man. I don't, I don't care who you are. That'll get you. I listen to that in the morning when I'm on my way to work or something. Um, but it's, it's, it's when you look at what he, like he wrote something about live cancer cell injections into prisoners. And you're like, when is this going to be exposed? And it had me looking into the history of madness and you realize, oh, we've not only dehumanized prisoners, we've dehumanized mental institutions. We dehumanized all of this aspects of things where nobody wanted to go there and interview these people because they were seen crazy or not human. And it's like, we don't need a scandal like that. And that's like the most important thing never to devalue, no matter how crazy someone's idea is or perspective or just thoughts are, just talk to them. And you realize they might not be necessarily that crazy. I'm just saying there's like some, there's some weight when you actually start having a conversation with someone. I've talked to some, one of my friends believes birds aren't real. And obviously I don't believe that, but we talked about it and he was giving me like a bunch of examples and I just go, I'm not believing it, but I mean, you have really strong points. So good on you for like at least researching into a little bit. And then I don't even think he really believes it, but it's like, that could take somebody by surprise, like what? And then you just really kind of talk it out. And then you start seeing like, okay, I'm starting to see your train of thought and thinking. I'm sure plenty of people back in the day were talking about how the Black Panther Party wasn't that bad. And people thought they were crazy. Because originally what's being shown to them is that the complete opposite. These are some hardcore radicals and all this type of stuff. So, I mean, if you can think like that and you could just have the conversation, you might, and eventually the truth will probably boil out. So, you know, and you've done that with me. You've given me the time to, I've ranted a couple of times and I apologize for that. Um, but I really appreciate the conversation you gave me to talk on my show, man. No, no need for apologies. You know, people like you and I that are sensitive um, and, and want to be aware, want to be informed, there's so many things that are wrong. The, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, the taking away of Native American children in America and Canada to take away their language and take away their culture, uh, uh, MKUltra, you know, some, sometimes public policy goes too far. And if it weren't for the relatively unimpeded flow of information, which brings in whistleblowers into, pay, into play, uh, what you don't know, you can't object to. And that's why I think podcasts are so important for, for years, for centuries, uh, people controlled information and media. And now with relatively decentralized information, uh, podcasts and websites and stuff, we have the ability to, to know more. 
that knowledge is power. I keep going back to my original statement. And uh, uh, but but if the truth is known, sometimes things do get better. We have to better to light a candle than curse the darkness. <laughs> That's a good quote. I might steal that from you. Um, is there a place where people can find your links anywhere you would like to promote your website? Any books? Um, my my uh, I have a website, uh, DirkGibson.org. And pretty much all of my stuff is on there. Um, I've been kind of fortunate. I was the researcher for a serial murder uh, series on Netflix about seven years ago called Becoming Evil. And we've, we're just wrapping up a new uh, series on unsolved serial murders. And I'm real excited because that'll probably be out uh, maybe January or February. But if folks just... Um, Whoever puts things on Google online has been very good to me, Robbie. And if you look up Dirk Gibson or Dirk Cameron Gibson, there's plenty of information there. And then folks can, uh, my my phone number, my emails are out there and folks can get a hold of me as they wish. And I'll make sure to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks for listening to this episode. Yeah, thank you so much, Robbie. You're a, you're a smart young man. And I wish the people like you were holding the levers of power maybe we'd all be a lot better off. I don't think it would probably corrupt me to, to be hundred percent honest with you. <laughs> Sometimes I'm good. I'm like, I don't need it. I don't need it. Um, but I'm going to link all your links in the description. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Blank Podcast.